You're listening to Sprogcast, a podcast for people interested in pregnancy, birth, infant feeding and early parenting. Sprogcast is presented by Mark Harris and Karen Hall and sponsored by Pinter and Martin. Merry festive break for secular and non-secular reasons. Last year for our December episode, we invited listener questions and although we may not actually have answered any of them, we did decide to do it again. We had a great response this year and have picked the best questions to include in the show. Thank you to everyone who contributed and please get in touch with your t-shirt preferences and address. We'll get those out to you in the new year. This is episode 57 of Sprogcast. I'm Karen Hall. And I'm Mark Harris wishing you a Merry Christmas, Karen. Thank you. And to you. And secular and non-secular reasons. Who writes these scripts? I think it might be me. <laughs> not everybody is Christmas. We're not really Christmas. I know. We're definitely I only know. a secular Christmas, that's for sure. I know. We at Sprogcast love being sponsored by Pinter and Martin. For all your evidence-based literature on pregnancy, birth and parenting at pinterandmartin.com. They also do fiction and a load of other stuff. Uh, look out for some of their great giveaways on Facebook. And if you're making a purchase, don't forget to use the Sprogcast code, which is Sprogcast. Use it to check out for a 10% discount. We also now collect sponsorship at patreon.com slash Sprogcast, where you can sign up for badges, t-shirts and other exciting rewards. If we can get rid of all these t-shirts, we might get some mugs. You can support <laughs> the show from as little as one US dollar per month. So if you can stretch to two dollars, we'll send you a badge. This month, we want to send a tinsely festive thank you to our newest patrons, Catherine Neal, Francis Attenborough and Catherine Woodbury, all of whom I know and love. Yeah, thank you very much. And uh, yep. Those of you that have submitted audio recordings, do send your details for T-shirts. Uh, you can't make a colour choice, uh, but the sizes go up to uh, XL. Right, I think now is probably a good time to have a look at these questions. Yeah, I'm really excited by the fact that we've got so many of them. Yeah, I know, it's good, isn't it? The first one we've got today is one of the written questions from Catherine Neal, who says, Hi guys, I'm really enjoying the podcast and have just joined Patreon to support you with it. Thanks for all the great guests you've had on. I have a question for your next podcast. What are the long-term implications for parents who have had a premature baby in terms of going on to have a successful breastfeeding relationship and also in terms of how to cope with having more children when the fear and memories of preterm birth looms over them? There's a fantastic book out there called Mothership by Francesca Segal who spoke at the recent Bliss conference and it is one of the most moving accounts I have ever read of preterm birth. She'd be a great guest to have on. So thanks, Catherine, for your question. Yeah, have you read that book? No, but I have just wishlisted it. And I also did um, ping a tweet to Francesca Sigal to see if she'd come on, but I don't think she's answered. Um, but I will pursue that because it sounds really interesting. And I'm, I'm, guessing, I'm guessing you've supported um, families uh, who have had a premature baby. I have. It's, it's not the thing I do the most often. No. Principles same, similar. Well... Yes and no, because there are going to be some issues depending on how premature and what the circumstances are and what kind of support that mother gets. Yeah. Um, but I've got more experience of talking to these mothers after the sort of initial urgent premature period. So once things are getting a little bit more normalised and they're getting out to social groups and things like that, I often have those conversations and it's been really interesting. One of the things that I particularly notice is um, where they've had really good 
support to express breast milk, they often right. find that they get a supply really well established and have a lot of milk, which is massively positive for them. And um, I can remember quite recently a, a mother saying, "Look, it's." It, in fact, she was um, her baby was born prematurely and was still in the NICU, and she had um, she was still in the middle of her antenatal course. So she came along to the breastfeeding session with her partner, but without their baby. Right. And they were lovely. And yeah. she said, "It's basically the only thing I can do at the moment. It's the only thing I can do for him is express milk." Yeah. No, I get that. So, so thinking of the question. <laughs> What are the implications for ongoing breastfeeding, successful breastfeeding, in well, the context of the relationship, you know, the breastfeeding relationship? I'm guessing um, the questioner is pointing towards less skin contact. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, what are the implications? Um, it's going to depend on how well things get established. So that early support and whether they're expressing and whether they can have skin to skin. And I'm also put in mind of somebody I supported or tried to support years ago. And I felt like a total failure on this one because she'd been in touch with me before the birth. She was expecting twins. And then I heard nothing from her for weeks. And then she got back to me when her twins who'd been born prematurely because of preeclampsia. So she'd been really ill and um, they'd been in special care and when she got them home she said I'd like to breastfeed and she'd done nothing and they were three weeks old at this point she'd done she'd done no expressing she'd done very little skin to skin and they were the parents were being encouraged by the NICU staff not to touch them they were sleeping in separate cots on the opposite sides of the room and they were you know the the real emphasis was on they need their sleep don't disturb them don't touch them and they were feeding very infrequently which is, I know that this is the case in, in the protocols in special care, that they kind of value the point at which the twins get, the, the, the premature babies get to three hours between feeds and four hours between feeds as a positive thing because it shows them, I, I guess, maturing and becoming resilient. But as far as breastfeeding is concerned. Did she manage to stimulate a supplier? No. Three weeks? No. But, I mean, this is why I feel like I've, I failed her, even though, you know, the 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 work was done at that point there was nothing i i yeah, felt you... at such a loss and it probably showed on my face when she said oh, right how do i get started with breastfeeding I'm like you're three weeks in and you've done nothing yeah you and didn't I fail her did you no and i don't mean that to as a judgment of her that she's done nothing but how did nobody help her i think balancing the demands uh, upon N uh, nnu staff uh, in the context of supporting a, you know, an unwell baby, uh, and the needs to breastfeed, you know, and a, a mother, a mother's desire to breastfeed, it, it's just not, it's not easy for NNU staff. Yeah. You know, I think I think they're probably doing their best. I I, I don't know much about cup feeding um, in the NNU, because of course there there will be early on issues with muscle memory. Mm-hmm. You know, if, you, if you're introducing a teat, uh, a dummy, you know, a formula fed via a, a, a teat, um, it involves different muscles in the jaw structure. Yeah. And initially, in most cases, it's going to be tube feeding. And if, yeah, of course. in a good, very breastfeeding supportive um, NNU, then you'd like to think that they'd move on to something like a, a nursing supplementer where there is tubing taped at the nipple so that the baby can start breastfeeding. 
yeah. and, and be getting the milk more easily through the tube, but also be yeah. stimulating the mother's milk supply. Yeah, yeah. No, I get that. Have we? Do you feel you've answered the question about the implications? I think so. And I also want to give a little cheeky wink to Catherine Neal because I know she knows more about this than I do from her experience. Well, maybe she'd come on sometime, yeah? That would be cool. I, the second half of the question, you know, how how do the family and the, the the mother themselves cope if there are fears and memories that uh, kind of are looping, you know, inside their experience? Well, I'm, I'm going to say, aren't I, that finding a three-step rewind uh, practitioner, you know, who isn't offering therapy, uh, but, you know, but will be able to guide uh, a client through a process that leads to the restructuring uh, of the memory, um, which, according to current state of our knowledge about how these things work, you know, enables the hippocampus to process the memory through to the forebrain and 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 kind of file it if you if you like in the past. So that there are there is help and support out there, without right. a doubt. So you recommend finding a way of coming to terms with it so that it doesn't hang over you as you go on to do this again i'm obviously going to talk about three-step rewind because it's what i train people in and and what i've had experience of over the last 18 years in the year that we've been digitally collecting this data we haven't had one woman who hasn't had an experience than that's been if not transformatory you know is that, is that a word transformative transformative if not transformative has led to significant changes in their life and experience so that's a hundred percent of the 120 digital anonymous feedbacks that we've had so i'm going to talk about the three-step rewind because i think it's you know a, a powerful way of relieving suffering but of course other types of talk therapy um and support uh are available and useful. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I think we did that one. Okay, then. So that actually brings us very neatly on to the next question, which is the first of our recorded questions. And this was the one I queried, should we do this? Yeah. And the reason I queried is because it sounds like at the point at which she sent it in, she's still going through it and it seemed... Yeah, and it's... I, I clarified with her about this one. Um when I got it through, I did listen to it and I sent her a message to say, would you like to talk with me, you know, over the phone? And she said, oh, you've misunderstood. This isn't about me. She does use the phrase while I'm still going through the thick of it. Yeah, go on then. This is our first recorded question and we've, we don't have a name for the person who sent it in. So anonymously, here's what she asks. Hi, Mark. I've got a question. Um, I'm interested in the three-step rewind for the trauma of a miscarriage. Now, I was just wondering if it was better for me to wait until it was all over or is it okay to do the process whilst I'm still going through the thick of it? Thank you. So this is really one for you, Mark. Yeah, and I'm going to keep I'm going to keep it I'm going to keep my answer short. Obviously, I'm I'm really sorry for um the experience that that this woman appears to be going through and uh yeah so i i'm going to keep the answer quite short 
Uh, and I'm going to keep my answer in the context of uh, the birthing awareness three-step rewind process. Now, because the process itself is not a therapeutic intervention, you know, it's, it's akin to uh, guiding someone through a meditation in many ways. Uh, and when a client follows through and follows the process, potentially the memory of the experience is re-encoded in such a way that they get to keep all the wisdom uh, that the memory afforded them uh, without the suffering that is currently attached to it. And my answer to this question is that whenever someone is reaching out for support because they are suffering uh, based on an experience uh, in the past, the reaching out itself is an indication that it's the right time to do it. Right. So I, I don't think there is any need to wait. And the pre-framing of that is, is very important. Uh, the, the process itself is not a therapeutic intervention. And certainly those trained by birthing awareness are not therapists. So in that context, if someone is seeking support and help, um, I would offer it. And it may be that reaching out to you results in conversations that take place Absolutely. over time and the three-step part of it happens a little later anyway. Absolutely. And, and of course, it enables signposting. Yes, which reminds me that I'm going to do my BBC thing and say, if you are in any way affected by this conversation, the Miscarriage Association at miscarriageassociation.org.uk has a helpline and can put you in touch with a support volunteer. All right. OK, so we've got something a little lighter now from Fleur Parker. Hi, guys. Thanks for the hours of intellectually intense content over the past few years. Mark, I've heard you speak at three different events and I'm really looking forward to seeing you again in Harrogate at Let's Talk Birth next year. This question is, of course, for both of you. I was wondering, what's the most challenging and disruptive heckle or question you've ever received whilst on stage or whilst facilitating groups? How did you respond and what did you really want to say? Well, I think that's one for you to start with. OK, well, um, I've never had a heckle on stage, thank goodness, although I have heckled Haven't people. you? <laughs> no. I haven't oh, spent I a great deal of time on a stage is, is why but I have heckled people um but while facilitating a group that was a really interesting thing to think about um and I would say that most of the jokes in what I say in my antenatal session have been pinched from parents over the course of years <laughs> um so I did I get a lot of that and I, oh, I do hear the same jokes over and over again um, which in itself is a challenge as I'm sure Fleur knows um yeah I would say the most challenging one. It's not actually that funny, unfortunately. It's when, because um, obviously I've got a, I've got eight dolls at the moment, one of which is not white. And when somebody picks up my my little um, black skinned doll and make a racist joke, oh, I find that very challenging. How do you handle that? I usually ignore it and feel ashamed because I want to call it out. Say, but that's get not out. the group <laughs> dynamic I'm looking for. No. I, I, I kind of work on a least said soon as mended basis. Yeah, no, I understand that. Do, do, you, do you have quite diverse groups, though? No, not really. Not here. No, no. Okay. Well, that's a tricky one now. Have you got a funny for us? Because we need one. Well, I've got, well, I, I've got some. I, I've got a couple, but, you know, I, most of my group facilitation work in recent years has been to all male groups. 
So I, I so there's a bit in in the training that I used to do to uh, male partners preparing for birth where we would talk about an environment conducive for a woman to be able to release herself as fully as possible sexually. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the and the implication moving on is that the hormones responsible for sexual release in a woman are the same family of hormones responsible for birth starting, continuing and finishing and for blood loss being controlled and for breastfeeding uh, being established. So the idea is that I'm moving from that kind of environment that would make it more likely for her to be released sexually uh, and then connecting that to birth environments. So uh, I've had a number of men uh, that when we talk about what what's a, a good general environment, uh, general factors in the environment that make it more likely that she will uh, be able to release herself sexually. I had, I've had blokes call out on the back seat of my Saab. <laughs> well, and my answer in an all-male group, I normally say to them, what's the difference between a hedgehog and a Saab? Well, the pricks are on the outside of the hedgehog. <laughs> I know, I know. Oh, Probably wouldn't work in a mixed group. It wouldn't work in a mixed group. Mm. And then there was one other thing that I found hilarious. It was when I was talking to a group of women, but there was one male partner in the group. And I'm talking about us all being female before the age of seven weeks in the womb. And I talk about the clitoris, you know, not just being the clitoral head, but the clitoral body that goes round, uh, you know, round and down that equates with the penis and the scrotum. And I said, look, when I talk about the clitoris, I always feel a little bit embarrassed. And I looked at him and he said, don't look at me. I don't know where it is. <laughs> no, that's funny. And I, I thought that was bang on. <laughs> yeah, I like that one. I could just imagine yeah. your sessions that you did, heavy breathing oh. and goodness me. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff going on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow. There you go. Hope that helps, Fleur. <laughs> For our next three questions, I'm going to play these together because they're very re- closely related. So pay attention. It's Rada from Rotherham. What is your best advice for midwives who are caring for women that are making choices that may be outside of the norm or routine guidelines and policies. Hiya Karen and Mark, it's Rebecca Steinfeld here. I love your show, as you know, and my question is, can you actually give birth like a feminist on the NHS? And that question is inspired by the interview that you did with Millie Hill about her powerful new book, Give Birth Like a Feminist, which was on episode 54 back in October. And Just to say, I'm totally on board with Millie's call to arms, our bodies, our choices, obviously, but I am concerned about how those choices may be constrained in an under-resourced and overstretched public healthcare system, and I'm particularly concerned that some choices may be even harder to make when that systemic lack of time and money overlaps with a healthcare professional's passionate but arguably paternalistic belief in the superiority of one way of birthing over another. So I'd really love to hear what you both think of that and if you share my concerns. I wish you both a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Cheers. Bye. So this is from Sarah, um, the Italian doula. I'm based in Northern Ireland. 
Um, it's about vaginal examinations. As a doula, I kind of see um, how vaginal examinations can be uncomfortable for women and also how they're not always performed with full consent. Um, so when are actually vaginal examination useful? When are they needed? Um, how did they come about? Why did someone at one stage thought it was a good idea um, to actually perform them? Um, and how do you think the profession perhaps is evolving or the health profession in general is evolving um, at all uh, with regard to that kind of examination? So can you see why I've lumped those three together? Yeah. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take in reverse order. Okay, good plan. If you look at the evidence, current evidence for routine vaginal examinations to, med to measure progress uh, in labour, uh, the evidence seems to be clear that it's worth very little as a measurement of progress. Um, as we know, you know, the stages of labor uh, were invented and now, you know, the profession tends to forget that we made them up and they believe in them like they're the truth. And, um, you know, the idea that doing regular vaginal examinations gives us any information that we can um, really use is certainly going out of fashion. So I think there is a movement away from any kind of routine vaginal examinations. It's slow movement, but it's happening. So I can remember when my son was born and in sort of very early stages of labour, actually asking for one and them going, no, no, we don't really need to do that yet. Yeah, no, that's the other thing I was I, I was going to talk about. Of course, if a woman uh, was asking me for a vaginal examination that wasn't indicated, uh, I would always explain why um, it's not indicated. But if a woman asks and has her own reasons for me uh, performing such an examination, I would do it. Um, and, and of course, one of the things I learned very early on was that to expect a woman to get on the bed for my convenience to perform a vaginal examination is just a mistake. You know, any, um, any, when, a, when I noticed a woman in the amygdala dance, you know, when she was responding to the, uh, the, the birth hormones in her body, I noticed early on that asking her to get on the bed was just disruptive. So I very soon learned to, to conduct a vaginal examination in whatever position a woman wanted to be in or felt most comfortable in. So standing up, kneeling, foot on a chair, all those kind of things. In water? In water, yeah. Uh, I say in water, uh, but often it would be with, with the woman uh, on a stool. Right you know, supported. Um, and I, I think that's an important skill for midwives to develop and learn mm. because the amount of women I, I hear who suffered some distress because they were constantly or regularly being asked to get back on the bed, you know, I think it's a skill that new midwives should quickly learn to develop. Um, when it comes to when are they useful and, and needed? Well, they're useful whenever a woman is requesting. 
and, and you know, she has her own reasons for requesting. So they're useful as a way of uh, offering her the support that she's asking for. Then I would say in the context of um, a, a doctor making an assessment prior to some kind of supportive delivery, you know, either a vacuum or a instrumental delivery, establishing the position of the baby's head, the presenting part, is is important and needful in that context. Beyond those two areas, I I uh, struggle to think um, when inside a spontaneously occurring labour uh, that they are absolutely needed. And I certainly looked after many, many women who didn't have any vaginal examinations throughout the whole of their, their labour and birth. None at all. I've got a question for you. May I ask you a question? Yeah. Have you ever been doing a vaginal examination and just done a little sweep while you were in there? I haven't, no. I've witnessed that. I, I, I've never done that and I would never do that. For me, the, the whole uh, power dynamic in the... In, the vaginal examination uh, is is skewed. So I've got to do everything I can to redress that balance. Mm -hmm. And don't forget, I was a 30 stone bald-headed man as well. So there was yes. a lot, there was a lot more to address. <laughs> so, so for me, any vaginal examination would be pre uh, prefixed with me saying, you know, that you're completely in control of what's about to happen. I don't start until you say I can and I finish as soon as you say I must. And that pre begins to pre-frame, um, um, I don't know, I don't know what I'm trying to say. Well, you're did saying you, did you get what it? Millie said in her interview when she was saying, you know, in a relationship, you may not be in a situation where you would want to say no every time you have sex, but you always know that if you want to say no you can yes and it's kind of forming that relationship where um, somebody yes. trusts you enough to know that if she says no you'll stop yes and developing the skill of being able to perform a vaginal examination in whatever position the woman wants to be in is also offering the woman power mm -hmm. she has power but is also is recognizing her power to choose yeah you know rather than saying you must be on the bed just like uh, offering a, a woman the the possibility of gas and air while the examination is being done. You know, all of these things for me were about shifting the power dynamic. Yeah. But I am still hearing stories of women being told, you know, if you don't accept a vaginal examination, we're not going to admit you. <sighs> yeah, that's disgusting and abusive. Mm. So can you actually it, give birth it, like a feminist on the NHS? You can, uh, but the level of the ability to exercise your rights and power, um, it's a challenge. You know, my stepdaughter gave birth not that long ago, and uh, she's a MA a physiotherapist with a biology degree uh, who has me as her father-in-law, stepfather-in-law, um, to ring and to talk to and to talk things through. And I got a text from her. Uh, in the midst of her experience of giving birth, saying, oh, my God, I am an intelligent, articulate, articulate <laughs> professional woman feeling like I don't have any control and choice. 
Oh, I've had that conversation recently as well. That's it's really hard to be reminded yeah. that people who in their normal day-to-day lives would not put themselves in a situation where they felt like that find themselves yeah. there on such an important at such an important time in their life. Yeah. It's frustrating. Is it is it possible to give birth uh, as a feminist in you know in the context of Millie's book? Yes. Will it take a level of courage? Probably yes. And it shouldn't, right? And it's going to need it's going to depend on the on people. Policies not at all because all the policies are there to empower women yeah. but what actually happens between policy and practice is um diverse and interesting but uh, it's absolutely. going to depend on having the people who support you so i can remember going in as a doula yeah. and the woman saying no cannula no needles no men in the room and the midwife just saying right got it and making that happen and that yeah worked but i hear so many stories that don't tie up with that you need the right people. You do. And of course, culture is held in place by language and by the rules of the institu- institution. So that's the explicit rules and the implicit rules. So, you know, if we're talking about transforming birthing culture, it starts with language, the language we use, the language that we routinely use spontaneously use and 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 then it leads on to an investigation of what the implicit rules of the institution are you know what the what conversations uh, take place at the midwives station about various midwives practice mm. you know but it starts um with our mouths it, it starts with the language of invitation. You know, it, 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 it's not rocket science, Karen. <laughs> you say that as if you think I'm going to argue with you. No, but I'm bored. I'm bored with people saying language is important. No, it's not important. It's foundational <laughs> to, to, our, to, to everything we do as professionals in the birth context. It's foundational. You know, given that women and their partners are living inside the story they tell themselves about what happened when they gave birth, the words that we use are framing experience, are directing meaning making. You know, we can influence these things in a massive way and it doesn't cost any money, which leads on to the other issue, which is, of course, an under-resourced and an overstretched healthcare system. Um, which hopefully is going to be transformed by massive investment uh, by the new Conservative government. We are recording this the day after the election. We I are, think Mark, I might have been being sarcastic. I think I was, and I'm going to restrain myself. We're doing very well so far to keep our spirits yeah. up, aren't we? Yeah, well, let's hope, let's hope that some of the promises about increased investment um, in the NHS come to fruition and of course the, the the promise to reinstate the bursaries for training nurses and midwives i hope that happens because um that was a tragic policy decision to stop paying the bursary but we've still got an nhs that that is filled with compassionate um value driven uh, individuals and i honor them and i'm grateful to them can I come back to your stepdaughter without want to make, wanting to make it personal? But do you know if she'd read anything like Millie Hill before she had her baby? She wouldn't have read Birth Like a Feminist because it weren't out. 
but she had Millie's first book. Mm-hmm. Um, she had Rebecca, Rebecca Schiller's, yeah. Schiller's book. She's a voracious reader. You see, that's what I think, you know, this is an intelligent woman, as she says about herself, and she's professional and she's prepared and she's even in medicine herself. So she yeah. knows how the systems work. Yeah. And that's her but there are so many people who aren't even as prepared as that and they go into this so naive and I don't mean that judgmentally but my worry is that Millie's preaching to the choir the people who get what Millie is saying are the people on the other side us we people who know hey look inside my echo chamber Labour were going to win a majority today yeah me too can't believe it was wrong. My echo chamber is full of very intelligent people. They were all wrong. But yeah, you're right. Um, we probably need uh, books that are popularist books, um, but are, are aimed in a diff- slightly different place to Millie's. Yeah, maybe. There there's needs to be something. But, you know, this is the issue, isn't it? What language can you use that will authentically and believably get that across to somebody who's never been there and I was at our Bumps and Babies group the other day and there was a woman with a baby a week old and there were women with older babies and the woman with the tiny baby said oh I met up with my friend yesterday and she's pregnant and she was interested in how the birth had gone and one of the other women said did you lie and she said yeah of course I did yeah because we can't talk about it there is no language yeah, no, I get that. It would help, of course, if One Born Every Minute didn't edit out uh, all of the consenting conversations from their footage. Yes, but actually, have you seen any of um, The Baby Has Landed? I haven't. It's good. Watch it. I love it. I'm writing it down. It will refill you with all the stuff that One Born Every Minute drained. All right. The Baby Has Landed. Yeah, I think it's on the Beeb, so you can find it on iPlayer. Okay. Well, I'll check it out. I, I, I hate the programmes usually. No, this is good. All right. Well, if you say it. I do. Have we covered that? Well, we? we had that last, um, rather, first bit from Rada, and she said, what's your best advice for midwives who are caring for women who may be making choices that are outside the norm or routine guidelines and policies? Get support from a more senior midwife uh, by senior i mean hierarchically and experience wise uh, and uh, be an advocate for the women and and follow her plan mm. it's a no-brainer isn't it <laughs> I, I remember yeah. once i remember once right way back um when water birth was kind of radical and uh, in the trust i worked we used to have the pool sabotaged every week someone would smash a mercury thermometer in it. Why? It was an act of sabotage, I think, because it happened so often. When a mercury thermometer was smashed in it back then, it was off limits for about a week. So I, I was looking after a woman in in the bath, and the bath was filled up, and you know, and I was keeping an eye on the temperature. But obviously, the bath isn't really deep enough for her to give birth in. Mm-hmm. And when she got to the point where she was transitioning, she was adamant she didn't want to come out of the bath. And I was okay with that. You know, I said to her, we're going to have to work hard to keep you under the water because the desire to lift your your, your buttocks off the surface of the bath may well be irresistible. But we can manage that if you want to stay here. And she said, I want to stay here. So I went out to the core staff and said, she's decided she's staying in the bath and blah, blah, blah. And the consultant and the senior midwife said, you've got to get her out, Mark. She can't give birth in there. So I said, well, I heard 
you know, I've asked, I've spoken to her, and she's not moving. So I said, go and ask her again. So I went in again, and I explained the kind of pressure, if you like, I was under outside, but I'm happy to support her choices. And she said, no, I'm staying. So I went out and uh, spoke to them, and I said, she's not getting out. And here's my suggestion. If you want her to get, get out, you can go in and physically get her out and you know uh, i'll be a witness against you when the assault charge is filed <laughs> and they said we'll leave it with you mark yeah and but the thing is you know if someone does anything uh physically uh towards you that you haven't consent consented to it's technically an assault right yep and that includes those vaginal examinations absolutely and uh covert sweeps which is disgusts me frankly yeah so that was an easy question that one isn't it i want to add something for student midwives now when i was a student midwife i was very left of center in terms of my practice my midwifery practice i read a you know a lot of uh, active birth books and stuff like that and i had very well developed views about the evidence and i thought i was right i mean these days i know i'm partially wrong about most things i think i'm right about but back then you know i was convinced i was right about pretty much everything and i fought every battle you know as a student midwife and it made being a student midwife hell but it shaped you it shaped me and i'm not knocking it but if i had my time again I would, I would quietly learn from my mentors uh, and I wouldn't challenge anything other than uh, behavior that I felt um, impacted on a woman's uh, dignity and autonomy. I, I wouldn't make judgments about the use of lithotomy for pushing. I wouldn't uh, question Valsalva's breath holding. I wouldn't... So you're saying you wouldn't advocate for the women anymore? Uh, no, I would, but as a student midwife, uh, I, I am, first of all, I'm practicing on the basis of my mentor's registration. So their values and, and mm. um, their understandings of the evidence uh, really trump mine in the context. Are you saying wait, learn? Yeah. Don't yeah, make that, a fuss until you're qualified. But isn't there a danger then that the, the conventions, as you say, the, the local conventions become embedded and then they never become the activist midwife who'll make a difference? No, I get that. There is that danger. But if, if you are a reflective student, and I thoroughly recommend you know, ref, a, a consistent personal reflective practice. Yeah. Now, for me, that meant going home and writing up uh, what I then call critical incidents and learning incidents, mm -hmm. you know, writing about it, how I felt about it, what my mentor did about it, what her basis for doing it was, and what I thought the evidence suggested would have been a better way. So my practice was constantly being informed by those reflections, and not because I had to do it, um, but because it was, it, it was growth supporting. Does that make sense? Yeah, 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 absolutely. It's just interesting to listen to your reflections on it now. Yeah, yeah. I, I just think I made the whole thing uh, a lot more stressful because I was challenging everything. But you were young and radical and you're uh, uh, mature now. And if you were young and radical again, you'd be doing the same well, thing. Well, we used to go to the pub every, once a week, uh, 
all a lot of us student midwives and newly qualified midwives and we called our group rage which stood for research awareness generates enthusiasm oh great <laughs> and we would invent each week something that we were going to do on the labor ward to, to implement some kind of change so one week it would be rubbing out delivery on the board and write writing giving birth or give given birth uh, another week it was put in the bin behind the door so that the doctor couldn't walk in without knocking uh, so we were you know radical and on the edge and I don't regret it I just think I would have had an easier life yeah but I think it's made you what you are yeah maybe, maybe. and I'm going to give a shout out to some of the other amazing midwives that we've spoken to over the last years um, who are making changes to the system in exactly the way you've said and in other ways and sometimes quietly and sometimes not so quietly so people like Phoebe Pelotti who we interviewed recently Sheena Byram who we haven't interviewed for a very long time and Kate Langley and Neve McCabe who we both saw speak at the Northern Ireland birth conference yeah and everyone else out there all of you and all of you student midwives doing such an important brilliant job yeah and sean sean walker is that right yes 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 get her in there because she's she's on the cutting edge of transforming women's experience of breach yes and if we haven't mentioned you there it is only because we're yeah we love you forgetful but we do love you yeah very much oh god getting emotional (laughs) two more questions and we've we're running out of time. Um, Catherine Kelly, NCT tutor, has sent in a written question. Hello, Karen and Mark. My good intentions to record a question have come to nothing, but it's 4am and I'm not asleep, so here is one for you. My students have been reflecting on how our culture shapes the experience of birth and parenting and will go on to identify something they want to change and present a plan of action. This is actually relevant to our conversation we've just had. Um, She says, what aspect of our UK culture would you like to change to improve the experience of birth and parenting for parents and babies and how would you go about doing that okay uh, this sounds a bit cheesy and a bit glib but i'll i'll say it i i, I think uh, it wouldn't be a bad idea to com- to write a book compiled of alternative phrases for uh, introducing to a client various um requests Right, so, so say like some of the um, like you know, Millie Hill's book. book, there were pages where it said these are some things you could could consider. Yeah. And, yeah. and some of that was ways of asking the question. Y- yeah, I, but this would be for the midwife. So, so, you know, rather than going to someone just to take bloods, you mm-hmm. know, um, you know, offering them a phrase that they could use that invites choice. You know, right? Like, like um, the one I heard at one of our MVP meetings. We we offer them the opportunity to come in for an induction. Nice. Uh, or, or you know, I, I used to say uh, these are the the booking bloods that we invite you to take, mm-hmm. and we invite you because blah 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 blah. And yeah. then I would say, are are you going to take a, up a, our invitation? Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Um, things around vaginal examinations that I've already talk, spoken about. Yeah. You know, just phrases um, that are written down so that we can practice using them and see the difference in terms of the connection that we start to engender with our client, with our colleagues. You almost want this to be a module on the midwifery degree, don't you? Yeah, you like, do. How do you talk to clients? Well, I think... Ling- uh, linguistics 
you know, kind of neuro-linguistics, if you like, and the importance of language when it comes to uh, human life and experience should be a core module on every uh, medical professional's training. Mm, you're totally right. And I'm available to deliver it. No, I'm <laughs> I'd joking. like to help you with that because I find this very interesting. Yeah, we I've should do that myself, yeah. where somebody has picked up on language that I've used and suggested a change, and then I've implemented that change until it's become habitual, and it changes the way you think, which is what you say all the time, isn't it? <laughs> I've got to figure these things out for myself, Mark. Like saying "and" instead of "but." Yeah, yeah, and just just little things like the introduction of the word "yet." So my, mm. my son will say, I can't do this. And I say, right, I get that you can't do it yet. We did that with solid food. I don't like it. You don't like it yet. You know, all, all of these little tweaks to language changes our experience and the experience of the people that hear it. You know, it shapes our experience of the world. I've got so an answer for this one. Let's do that. Let's put together uh, a training program, Karen. All right, then we'll, we will. Give us a shout if you want us to come and deliver it at your yeah. establishment. Yeah, if you want us to, that will prompt us to do it. Yeah. Anyway, go on. Okay, so mine's focused on breastfeeding, of course. Um, I would like recognition of the value of breastfeeding in terms of overall physical and mental health of our nation. Um, so I want funding, I want resources, I want genuine implementation of the WHO code. I want trained and experienced and fully debriefed professional care for new mothers. Um, some of it in their own homes. I want real focus on the very early days because I feel very strongly that if parents can get both their feet firmly on that first step, they are much better able to climb the rest of the ladder themselves. Yeah. That's my thing. And I don't know how I would go about doing that. Sorry, Catherine. I know it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because, you know, breastfeeding rates. Um... Well, you know, we've got a new government. Maybe it'll happen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Finally, a question from Emma Rosen. Hi, Karen and Mark. It's Emma Rosen here. I was just wondering what you would put in your top five books for a resources library for like a doula or a birth worker or a somebody in the breastfeeding world, somebody who wants to put together a library for new mums to access. What would you put in there? What a lovely question. They would be um, obviously give birth like a feminist. Thank you, Millie. Yeah. Um, my Perennial favourite, Successful Infant Feeding by Heather Welford. Yeah. Out of print, but you can still get it secondhand on Amazon. Why Perinatal Depression Matters from Mere Scotland. Yeah. One of the best books I know about the experience of becoming parents. Yeah, agreed. Um, and, and its name doesn't begin to describe what's in it. The No Guilt Pregnancy Plan from Rebecca Schiller. Yeah. And Informed is Best from Amy Brown. And anything else by Amy Brown while you're at it. I think your five are pretty good. <laughs> Is there anything you would yeah, add? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm going to have Caroline Flint's very old book. I think it's called Sensitive Midwifery. Is that right? Okay. I read it when I was 24. It was one of the books that, that um, it began to shape uh, the kind of midwife that I became. Another one I would get uh, is Michel Adon. Uh, his book, Birth in an Age of Plastics. That's fairly new, isn't it? And that's Pinter and Martin. Yeah, I think that's a, a, a must-read for a doula, student midwife. Um, there's another book, uh, Men, Love and Birth. Who's that by? <laughs> I've never heard of it. Oh, Sounds God. rubbish. Narcissism rules. Okay. <laughs> no, I'm half joking. I, I think that book's had a good 
impact on the preparation of particularly male partners for uh, for the birth experience, given the kind of feedback I get? Shame there's no sequel. Uh, well, there, 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 there may be. Should we do it together? I'll help. Yeah, we could do it together if you want. And yeah. I, I just wanted to back up, back you up on Rebecca Schuler's book. Yeah, the no no guilt pregnancy plan. Yeah, that, I think that for me that I, that trumps uh, Millie's. They're both both good. Yeah, they're both good. I'm just saying. Yeah. Yeah, I think no guilt pregnancy plan is perhaps the one that I think is more useful for a, if I absolutely had to choose one to give somebody it would probably be Rebecca Schiller but it's a, a knife edge of a choice yeah and and of course yeah I and some of the old ones you know there's a Penny Simpkin book about uh, birth uh, supporters again I can't remember the exact title oh the birth partner yeah yeah it's, it's a damn cool book hmm. yeah and uh, there's another book I think it's Penny Simpkins about uh, positions, about um, encouraging the baby to take up different positions uh, through a woman's um, movement. And again, I can't remember it, but I think it's Penny Simpkins. But these are that all- one hasn't come up for me. I've been googling as you talk. Uh, I'll have a think about what, what it is. But it, it was a very the book I'm thinking about uh, when I come up with the title. Very influential for me um oh yes uh active birth by janet Pulaskas. yes that was the one i read at the same time as caroline flints and i found that very helpful because it, it gave me information to offer a woman um so that she could try out some of these positions and ways of moving it kind of gave me strategies that I could suggest. There you go, then. That's nine books that yeah. we think should go in everybody's library. All right. Come on, Karen. Let's let's get this podcast done. Yeah, we need to finish. I've got an essay to write. So that is all we've got time for today. So let us know what you think on Facebook or Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. And we hope that if you are listening to this on December the 25th, as of course you all are, our lovely loyal listeners, that you are having a lovely day. Yeah. yeah. And you've got nice stuff. <laughs> That's facebook.com slash broadcast and at broadcast on Twitter. If you're listening on iTunes, come on, come on, go to iTunes and give us a four to five star review. Don't forget to check out Patreon. Thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day. Bye. You've been listening to Sprogcast with Karen Hall and Mark Harris. The news we've been discussing is on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Sprogcast. And don't forget you can buy great books from pinterandmartin.com using the discount code Sprogcast at the checkout.